Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. How will Washington respond after the first Americans are targeted and killed in the Middle East since October 7th? Former U.S. Ambassador to Israel Daniel Kurtzer joins me on the rising risk of a wider war. Then, the North Korean dictator ditches reunification and threatens to subjugate the South. I speak to South Korea's former foreign minister Kang Kyung-wha about Pyongyang's dangerous policy shift. Also, he and his colleagues are 100% innocent. A daughter's plea to stop Bangladesh from locking up one of its most famous citizens, her father, Nobel laureate Mohammed Yunus. Plus, Donald Trump is going to be the defendant and the candidate. Democracy on trial. Filmmaker Michael Kirk talks to Hari Srinivasan about the intricate details in the indictment of Donald Trump over January 6th. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiane Amanpour in London. Tonight, colliding crises in the Middle East. How should the Biden administration respond to the killing of the first Americans in this October 7th war? Three are dead and dozens injured after the USS and Iran-backed militia conducted a drone attack on their base, which is known as Tower 22 in Jordan. How can the United States also convince Israel to ensure fewer civilians are killed in Gaza, where Palestinian health authorities now say more than 26,000 are dead, 200 killed in the last 24 hours alone? And Israel reports Hamas sent a barrage of new rocket fire its way. How will more desperately needed humanitarian aid reach Gaza as the United States and almost half the donors suspend funding to the UN agency that does this after Israel shared intelligence showing 12 UNRWA staff members were allegedly involved in the October 7 attacks on Israel. Daniel Kurtzer was U.S. ambassador to Cairo under the Clinton administration and Tel Aviv for George W. Bush. He's advised many administrations and he's joining us now from Washington, D.C. Um, uh, ambassador Kurtzer, how concerned are you about the killing of three servicemen? It appears this was inevitable, that this was going to happen at some point. Well, it's not surprising that uh, 
uh, our troops that have been in the line of fire now for many years in the Middle East uh, have suffered casualties. It's sad, and it's uh, presented Washington with a dilemma about uh, when and how to respond. Um, clearly, the uh, situation in Gaza has inflamed tensions, but uh, these attacks were going on even before the war in Gaza. Uh, and the objective, of course, has been that uh, if we're fighting uh, the terrorists there, we're preventing them from uh, uh, organizing and attacking elsewhere. So my guess is that the administration will calibrate its response so as not to widen uh, a war, but will certainly respond in a manner designed to uh, make a convincing argument that these attacks should stop. So as you know, uh, there are what I would call the usual suspects, hardliners in Congress, in the Republican Party, saying that the administration should hit hard on Iran itself. Do you think that is proportionate? Do you think that that is what the administration will do? And if it does, will that inevitably escalate this? Well, to use your vernacular, it's out of whack. Uh, this is uh, an attack that's been stimulated by the authorities in Iran, probably by the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. But to hit back at Iran uh, suggests that we want to widen a war. And there's nobody really who's serious about wanting to widen a war. So that's why I think the, the key word to watch here is a calibrated and proportional uh, response. We certainly are going to hit at targets in Syria where the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, have ensconced themselves, where the perpetrators of this attack uh, launched the drone. But uh, I don't think there's a chance at all that we will take this war to uh, Iran uh, proper. Interesting you say from Syria, because the U.S. says it's still trying to figure out whether it was from Iraq, from Syria. But I know what you mean. That that's where this uh, coalition, if you like, of Iran-backed proxies are stationed. I want to ask you another question on this regarding the urging to, to go to war against Iran itself. A Democratic strategist, Simon Rosenberg, basically said about the GOP, if you are unhappy with Iran today, first thing you should do is come out for funding Ukraine fully. Nothing will embolden Iran more than a Russian victory in Europe. Do you, do you agree with that? Well, I think it's right on, right on the mark. Um, you know, there's, there's a larger uh, global uh, uh, balance of power that's being tested now. Iran has thrown all of its weight, uh, some of its technology, a drone-making capability uh, behind Russia's uh, attacks in Ukraine. And therefore, there's an urgency in Washington to ensure that we continue supporting Ukraine. And that makes for a very difficult political problem here because uh, Republicans have tied funding for Ukraine and for Israel to a border deal, which is being negotiated. So it's a very complex uh, intersection of foreign and domestic politics. But I think that uh, Rosenberg's exactly right, that uh, the last thing we would want is to pull back from Ukraine uh, or to uh, walk away from the Middle East and uh, allow both Russia and Iran to score a success. Can I ask you, because, you know, the, the big news over the weekend or just before the weekend is that Donald Trump is actually pressuring his whole MAGA group, are pressuring not just the House, which already doesn't want to approve this aid, uh, this deal, but the Senate. Uh, he wants to not have a solution to the border deal right now. He said it himself, frankly. Um, you know, 
do his how to how to convince his followers or the you know the GOP that have actually been actually been elected that this is playing with American national security. Well, the Republicans are a, a badly divided party, and they can't quite figure out uh, where politics ends and national interest begins. You take a look at Senator James Lankford, uh, a conservative through and through, who basically told Fox News the other day that this is a good deal that's being negotiated, and it's a deal that Donald Trump himself was arguing for when he was president. So Trump has politicized a national security issue, and he has politicized an issue that would have been a victory for him had it been achieved during his presidency. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have a problem here, which uh, we've had now for a number of years, where uh, politics has invaded uh, every aspect of life, including on this very important issue of how to control our southern border. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, let me just switch now to the, the Israel-Gaza war against Hamas. The allegations and the intelligence that Israel apparently has shared showing 12 members of UNRWA, the UN Works and Relief Agency that specifically deals with Palestinian historic refugees, has been accused of having 12 of its members take part in October 7th. Now, the UN says this is, these are very serious allegations. I believe they've fired, the UNRWA have fired these 12 and investigations go on. Let me ask you first, should the United States and the donor community suspend funding, which affects then the aid into this beleaguered enclave right now? Well, I hope the suspension of funding by the US and eight or nine other countries is a temporary uh, uh, action designed to put pressure on the UN administration to take some serious steps to reform UNRWA. Uh, if the uh, funding suspension goes on for too long, it will have a very deleterious effect on the humanitarian situation on the ground. And even Israel admits that UNRWA is the best positioned UN agency to deliver that humanitarian assistance. So we're, we're in a little bit of a pressure tactic here to get the UN to wake up to what, frankly, everyone has known as a long-standing problem, where Hamas has uh, inserted uh, quite a few of its uh, advocates and adherents into the UNRWA bureaucracy. And now we find out that some of them actually engaged in October 7th uh, massacre. So uh, again, I hope it's a short-term uh, uh, pressure point and that the UN acts swiftly to uh, try to deal with it so that the funding can be resumed. And of course, UNRWA points out that it's 12 allegations against 12 amid a, a workforce of 13,000. Nonetheless, these are, as they say, very serious allegations. But as you say, if it's not UNRWA, then it has to be Israel, right? This is Anshel Pfeffer, the famous Israeli uh, journalist who wrote in Haaretz today. Israel is not about to suspend its ties with UNRWA unless the Israel Defense Forces decide it wants to distribute the food, water, and medical supplies to over 2 million Palestinians in Gaza. It needs UNRWA to do it. It's just a matter of time before those Western governments restore UNRWA's funding. I think you agree with that, but it does go to the fact that the suspension is probably temporary. But the fact of the matter is that there is an ongoing I mean, major conflict between Israel and the UN in general. Uh, you know, I spoke to a, a senior Israeli official the other day uh, who really spoke out of both ends of this or, or to both ends of this issue. On the one hand, 
Israel has known for quite some time that UNRWA is a very faulted organization. Their educational system preaches uh, hatred and incitement. Uh, it has been uh, infiltrated by uh, very uh, rabid opponents of Israel. And on the other hand, it is the most effective deliverer of education and social affairs and food aid and so forth on the ground. And the argument that this person made was that there will be a reckoning someday, but that it can't take place now because the humanitarian needs on the ground mm -hmm. are too severe. So I think Anshul Pfeffer is exactly right. And uh, the UN ought to act swiftly to, uh, to deal with this so that we can get back to a a situation which UNRWA can deliver aid the way it has until now. Mm -hmm. Of course, the end game that most would like to see, and I, I assume you're in this camp as well, is an end to occupation and some kind of statehood for the Palestinians, which is uh, what the United States backs, frankly. So I want to ask you this, because there seems to be a lot of problems and divisions within Israel and certainly the war cabinet over the lack of a stated end game or a plan for afterwards. And to that end, you know, the, there's been, a, a it's, as, as described, there was a rally in Jerusalem of government ministers and, and Knesset ministers, uh, members rather, uh, calling for the resettlement of Gaza, despite, as we know, warnings from the United States, the top UN court. This is what the national security guy, Ben Gavir, said at the event. Part of correcting the mistake, of the recognition of the mistaken conception that brought upon us the 7th of October and brought upon us the deportation, is to return back home to Gush Katif and North Samaria. Um, so, Ambassador, who is in charge? Because, uh, you know, to, the, to, his, to his international audience, the prime minister says, no, that's not our aim. But what's happening, you know, with his allies? What's happening when he speaks to people in, in their own language, in Hebrew? Well, clearly, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is so intent upon remaining in power in order to avoid the various uh, corruption charges uh, which have found their way into court that he is allowing the most rabid, racist uh, incitement on the part of his own government. I think there were 11 or 12 ministers who attended that uh, conference and called not only for the resettlement of Gaza by Israel, but basically said that that means the depopulation of the Palestinians in Gaza. So Netanyahu is clearly not in charge. It shows in the polls. Uh, the latest polls show he has uh, somewhere less than 20% support for remaining in mm -hmm. power. Most of the uh, retired national security uh, community in Israel wants him out, uh, but he's hanging on. Mm -hmm. And uh, that puts a little bit of pressure on Washington, on the president uh, to uh, back up his words that he shared with Netanyahu with some actions to see whether or not we can uh, change, see change in Israeli policy. Very, very quickly, finally, the, the White House has said, the spokespeople, that they're very troubled about those kind of statements, that they uh, oppose and they do not support any Israeli reoccupation of Gaza. But the flip side, how much pressure is this putting on Biden, this whole war, for instance, with voters? I mean, we're in an election year right now, young people, Arab Americans. I mean, there's a, there's a whole constituency who doesn't like his stance in this war. Well, clearly there are two, at least two groups that uh, are troubled. Uh, one are Arab Americans uh, generally, and the other are uh, young people under the age of 35. We now have seen a group of uh, black uh, religious leaders who are uh, upset about the absence of a ceasefire. Right. 
And so at some point, the White House is going to have to pivot uh, to deal with the political backlash. Uh, but I think the president hopes that the war will wind down to a point where he can refocus the uh, campaign yes. on issues such as reproductive rights and so forth. Ambassador Kurtzer, thank you very much. And to that point, there have been uh, negotiations over various solutions to try to get the hostages freed, but as yet, they have not come to fruition. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From the Middle East to East Asia, the sabers are truly rattling. Earlier this month, North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un tested a new ballistic missile, launched several cruise missiles, and claimed the successful test of an underwater nuclear weapons system. Once focused on a reunified peninsula, Kim Jong-un is now calling the South his primary foe and invariable principal enemy. Those are his words. Even tearing down, quote, the arch of reunification, a symbol of hope for the peninsula. Earlier, I spoke to South Korea's former foreign minister, Kang Kyung-wha, who told me that to prevent conflict there, there needs to be meaningful engagement, not just show summits like the one led by President Trump in Hanoi in 2019, which she called a debacle. Kang Kyung-wha is now the incoming head of the Asia Society in New York, and she joined me from Seoul. Foreign Minister Kang Kyung-wha, welcome back to our program. Thank you, Christian. It's wonderful to be back with you, although in a different capacity from my previous job. So... I'm going to talk to you as foreign minister, frankly, for a moment, uh, because you're still in Seoul before you take up your position mm -hmm. in New York. Are you more and more worried, like mm -hmm. everybody appears to be, about your northern neighbor? Kim Jong-un, head of North Korea, has done a whole load of much more provocative things recently and has said that mm -hmm. one way or another, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. one way or another, there will be reunification, even if it's not peaceful. Do you think that he's on a path to war. Mm -hmm. Well, it certainly feels that way, but he always tempers that hawkish statement with moderation. So, for example, I think after he says all these uh, things filled with hostility, he says, unless somebody touches us first, we're not going to touch them. 
um, the exercises are not designed to harm anybody, any countries around. So you see a bit of an attempt to control the level of the, the hostile rhetoric. It is still concerning, of course, uh, but this heightened rhetoric plus the, the testing of the missiles, this con is a continuation of a pattern that began after the debacle of the 2019 Hanoi summit between the United States and North Korea. After that, they immediately went back to launching the missiles, and that has picked up speed, more frequency in the recent years. And then the, you know, the rhetorical hostility that goes it, with it is, of course, more recent. Okay, I want to pick up on what yes. you just said about the Hanoi summit. I was there in 2019 when President Trump met with Kim Jong-un, mm -hmm. and of course it was all meant to be rosy before mm -hmm. they had met in your country, in South Korea, or at least up there at the border, mm -hmm. and it was mm -hmm. all meant to be rosy. But you're saying mm -hmm. that actually what Trump did didn't amount to much. There was no ratcheting down of tensions. Well, I think, yeah, I think what came out of that summit, or what didn't come out of that summit is, you know, in hindsight, it's all a very missed opportunity, an opportunity that could have, uh, the life of that opportunity should have been kept, even if they didn't have an agreement there. I think that somehow a way to continue the discussion to keep North Korea engaged would have been extremely important. And frankly, we would not be in this situation. But I think, you know, the, the, the 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 failure i think is explain i explained it that's what the president has tremendous desire intention to do something but there was very little backup at the working level mm -hmm. and and this is you know this is the this is the typical trump leadership on these issues will but very little follow up and and support from the working level so that's a huge lesson when we ever go back to a phase of engagement with north korea and, and potentially a huge lesson for how you would deal with the potential uh, mm -hmm. uh, eventuality of him returning as president. What do you think a second Trump presidency means for, you know, the Korean Peninsula, but also for U.S.-Asian relations? Mm -hmm. Well, that is the big question in everybody's mind around the world uh, these days, I believe. And, and that is the big the most consequential event for not just the United States, but for the world, frankly. And so, yes, uh, we, we're all having, you know, you know, contingencies thinking in our minds. But I think, you know, as foreign minister and at first as Asia Society president, I would not comment on how the election is unfolding. Um, but, you know, we, we will we will deal with the, the, the results. We will respect the will of the American voters uh, the, as the result of the the elections. Yeah, yeah, that's all well and good. But you've basically just told me that there was no follow up. Uh, I can read you the list of things that have happened since that mm -hmm. North Korea, that summit with Trump. Several cruel missiles have been, you know, uh, mm -hmm. you, mm -hmm. your country has reported them being fired at you, uh, testing a new strategic solid fuel mm -hmm. intermediate range, uh, which could be nuclear armed mm -hmm. earlier this month, mm -hmm. you know, tons of artillery shells into waters near you. On yep. top of all that, it is now mm -hmm. becoming the principal or a principal armor of of uh, Russia and joining up with Iran to to, yes. you know, I, I so yes. was it all for show? I think there is a you know, certain calculation on the part of the North Koreans and certainly, uh, you know, the, the big players, the close 
collaboration between Russia and uh, North Korea on the military front, North Korean's uh, artillery shells and missiles going to the Ukraine battlefield is is a concern not just for for us here on the Korean Peninsula but also in Europe. So, and it's glad that Mr. Sullivan expressed that concern to the Chinese in Bangkok to Mr. Wang Yi very explicitly and requested, called for China's intervention, China's pressure on the North Koreans uh, to do something about this. What China does about it, we'll have to see very carefully, but it's a global concern. So I think it's, 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 it's right that the media has now returned its focus on, on North Korea's behavior. Uh, but we also need to calculate, yes, we have to respond with a very solid defense posture for sure, so that we're prepared for any provocations. But then we must do it with overwhelming force that, so that it's the, the one round finishes the provocation and doesn't escalate into further rounds. Because if we get into that stage, it becomes really, really difficult. And I don't think anybody at this time in the world would like to see another flashpoint getting out of control. Mm -hmm. and, and there's a lot of potential for that here on the Korean Peninsula. So I think all cool heads must try to manage the situation to lower the tensions. Kim Jong-un has declared unification no longer possible mm. with the South. His government has ordered the monument to reunification mm -hmm. in Pyongyang mm. to be torn down. Uh, you've spoken about maybe, you know, you have to listen mm -hmm. to every word he says, but nonetheless, this is happening. Now, I want to ask you, mm. because you're talking about heightened tensions, Trump has also said that if he returns, he is going to slap a 60% tariff on all goods from China. Does threatening to slap a 60% trade tariff mm -hmm. on China hurt or hinder stability? Mm -hmm. I think definitely it works against stability because I, when we were working on, on, the, on the North Korea file and the geopolitics of the Northeast Asia, the you know the the heightening tension on the trade issue between north uh, between the united states and china on the one hand and then we were collaborating with the chinese on the north korea file on the other hand and you i could clearly feel that the chinese collaboration on the north korea file was weakening as the tension with the united states on the trade side and other issue was increasing so the united states was trying to do two things that was pulling them in different directions. So I, I think this idea of a across-the-board tariff in a huge trade uh, punishment, uh, if it ever comes about, you know, I would I would be very concerned if that was really to materialize. Mm -hmm. um, Foreign Minister, you are, as we said, about to take up your position as the new president and CEO of the Asia Society. That'll be in New York, and that's happening uh, early mm -hmm. April. What inspired mm -hmm. you to take on this new position? Mm -hmm. What do you hope to be able to accomplish, you know, out of office, not wanting to interfere in others' mm -hmm. you know, policy, as you just said. But what do you want to accomplish, since we've outlined just mm -hmm. now a couple of very serious threats in the Asia region? Well, Asia society is a very unique outfit. It's not government. It's not the United Nations. It's a, it's a non-profit, non-governmental organization with a unique set of tools. It's not just policy, um, you know, dialogue platform, but also 
very strong traditionally cultural and education exchange and uh, cultural and arts exchange and education. Christian, you were there when the New York Philharmonic visited North Korea, sponsored by Asia Society. That was ages ago. I'm not sure we could pull off something like that again this, in these days. But th that's the uniqueness of, of uh, Asia Society. We have these tools. Uh, I believe we are a trusted partner from many key players. And, and we can work both openly, but also under the radar. Well, you mentioned that uh, Philharmonic musical interlude there with that musical diplomacy. And I would be very, very happy to keep uh, mm -hmm. reporting if ever such a bridge could be, you know, created again. I'd be very happy to do that. You have a huge challenge on your hands. Foreign Minister Kang Kyung-hwa, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Christian. And next to Bangladesh, where 76-year-old Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina won a fifth term this month. She's credited with shoring up the economy and balancing relations with its giant neighbors, India and China. But the United States says those elections were not free and fair. And now even one of the nation's most lauded sons has been targeted, Nobel Peace Prize winner Mohammed Yunus. He's globally acknowledged for pioneering microloans, which are credited with helping millions of women lead their families out of poverty. But this month, he was sentenced to six months in prison over allegations of violating labor laws. He's currently out on bail while he appeals the sentence. His family and allies call the whole thing a trumped up political trial, a claim the government denies. I spoke to his opera star daughter, Monica Yunus, who's campaigning to keep her father out of jail. Monica Yunus, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Your father is very well known to the whole world. The whole, you know, Nobel laureate community have signed a letter calling for an end to what they call judicial harassment against him and for his uh, release and not to, not to go to jail. You're sitting here in front of me lobbying for him and his safety and his release. Are you worried? Are you, what do you think it means for you to speak out now? I think it's imperative for me to speak out, to join the chorus of the many, many uh, luminaries who have signed this letter in support of him. These charges against him and those of, of his colleagues are absolutely false, and it's important for me to speak out against them. So what are the charges? So the charges are really civil in nature. It's an employment issue, something that would be normally dealt with in civil court. It's been criminalized. Uh, there is absolutely no sense to them. Uh, and they carry, charges? They're I real mean, the, charges and they carry a prison sentence. And but that's the ones the that are civil that you say, yeah. are they justified, the civil no, charges? No, absolutely not. He and his colleagues are 100% innocent. Every, you know, you don't have to take his daughter's word for it. There are international lawyers who've looked at it. This is absolutely false. What now do you expect to happen uh, from the Bangladeshi government point of view, because this is a letter um, addressed to Prime Minister Sheikh yes. Hasina. She's now in her fifth term, just a few weeks ago, won yet another term. I think she ran unopposed. What do you expect from her now? Well, my fondest wish is for all the charges to be dropped, not just for my father, but for his colleagues. Uh, this is absolutely false. And, you know, I would love for the offer that she made. She told reporters that she would bring in um, international lawyers. She, could, she would welcome international lawyers and experts to come in and evaluate the situation. And I feel 100% confident that all of this would be absolutely erased 
if that happened because there is no guilt. Do you think that she's being serious because she has called your father a bloodsucker of the poor? Uh, once she apparently said someone ought to teach him a lesson. Um, it's reported that all of this is because she believed that he was becoming a political threat to her, that, she, that he wanted to, you know, start a political party. He's not a politician. I think he thought about it for a moment after he had received the Nobel Peace Prize. I think he was a party of one. He has no political aspirations. It's something that, you know, we've talked about and this keeps coming up, but it has no validity. So what do you think it really is then? I wish I knew. I really do. I think at, at one point, you know, they worked well together. And my, my wish is that that could come back, not only for the benefit of all the Grameen organizations. That's the bank he founded. Exactly. Grameen Bank, meaning Village Bank, that is so much about microcredit and empowering poorest, the poorest of the poor, specifically poor women. Uh, I think that if that opportunity to work together again, that would be wonderful. There's so much in civil society in Bangladesh. There are so many people working to keep Bangladesh at the highest level of sort of the, the beacon of economic development. That's what could be focused on. That's what should be focused on. I am an American citizen, but I was born in Bangladesh. I've been to Bangladesh. The creativity, the innovation, it's why people keep going back because they're, they're charmed by all of the, the um, innovation that can come out of that. And that is a testament to the country and to the flourishing civil society. So remind people, because it was, I think, your father, essentially, who made the idea of microcredit, microloans, known around the world, fashionable, in fact, in the aid community thereafter. Yes, yeah, so he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2006 alongside Grameen Bank, which is the institution he created, Village Bank, which focuses on everything that a traditional bank doesn't. So if in a traditional bank, you give loans to people with collateral, in uh, Grameen Bank, you give people to, you give loans, small loans for income generating activities to, uh, to the women. poorest of the poor, focusing on women. And it is mostly women, right? It is right? mostly women. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and I want to just put it in your father's yeah. words. Here's a clip from, um, he was talking almost 20 years ago now, about the way Grameen Bank has changed lives. But the children are seeing a very different world around them. Uh, they see a bank, they see her mother working, his mother working, and they are being sent to school because every mother in Grameen Bank wants to send their children to school. Today, I can even safely say 100% of the children of Grameen Bank are in schools. That was... Uh, I love that. I love that. He was smiling. I'm smiling because, you know, that's 20 years ago. So those children have grown up and they've come to my father and said, okay, great, I have this wonderful education. What now? Where do I go to work? My mother did all of this. How can I become, you know, how can I do even better? So they go for higher education. There's a higher education loan. They go become doctors. This was, un this was impossible 20, 30 years ago. So he had a very uh, technocratical way, if I could put it, technocratic way of figuring out uh, actual proper financial, it wasn't just throwing money. No, no, at not people. at all. And he betted on women being a good bet for repayment. Tell me what the figures were for repayment and why it was the women in these poor families who got the credit, not their husbands. So at the very beginning, there were loans given to men and what they found was that men did not spend the money on the family. They did not spend it on the women and the family. So they began to really focus their attention on women. There is a very high repayment rate, something like 98%. Women repay, women pay back. 
they take out larger loans, they make a, a larger business. They start to, what, what they've seen is they start to run for small offices around in their villages. You know, there's political, the political, yeah, yeah. political office, yeah. exactly. So there's- like The school board the school or the board city council, and They get involved so because yeah, they, 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 get become, involved. they become empowered by this. What do you make of some criticism that has started to emerge in the intervening years that microcredit has, you know, developed into, you know, putting women into debt that they then spend a lifetime trying to repay. I'm not an expert, but to me, it's very simple. If you don't use the model that has been set and there's a very specific model, it can fail. Of course, it's just like anything. If you set something up and it doesn't follow a certain set of rules, it's not going to work as well. So I think the criticism is probably from people who didn't necessarily follow the structure that, you know, that Grameen set out. Why is he being persecuted? And again, looking at you, looking at that picture, you can see that your dad, you know, was 20 years ago, he was young, he was vigorous, he was at the top of he his game. He still is. <laughs> okay, he's 83 now. He's 83 he, years and young. And he refuses to leave Bangladesh. Correct. Why is he being persecuted? I wish I knew the answer to that. Why do you think? He, you know, he, he's worked with this government. And I think that it's an opportunity to work together again instead of wasting time in these frivolous, erroneous, egregious cases against him and a kind of harassment that's persisted now for over 10 years. Do you think he's going to beat this rap, so to speak? I hope so. As a daughter looking at this, I don't relish the idea of my 83-year-old father, who is very healthy and strong, and, you know, but the idea of him going to jail is not And it's I for six months, is that correct? Yes. As I mentioned, Sheikh Hasina has been prime minister for now you know, this five terms. She was once in the late 90s, then she's entered her fourth consecutive term. Um, opposition party says 2.5 million, and that's a huge number of people of its members are currently facing political charges. <sighs> As an American citizen, what do you make of all of this? Well, I can say that it's very concerning that all other political parties boycotted this election. You know, what does that say about democracy when there's one person running? Um, and again, from my perspective, Amnesty International is weighing in, the International Bar Association for Human Rights, the UN um, High Secretary for Human Rights, they're all weighing in saying this is concerning. Why do you think he, he won't leave? He didn't leave even faced with these charges. So he's worked his whole life for this vision of creating a world without poverty. That vision was started in Bangladesh with many colleagues who he still works with. So it's not just, you know, their work that's at stake. It's thousands of people who have made this dream of a world without poverty. They continue to do that. So why should he leave his country that he loves so much? And is he the first or the only Bangladeshi Nobel laureate? That's correct. You'd think he'd be lionized. Yeah, I mean, he's won. I can, honestly, I can't keep track. Christian, he's won the Nobel Peace Prize. He's one of only seven people in the world to have won the Nobel Peace Prize, the Congressional Gold Medal, and the um, Medal of Freedom. Wow. Yeah, the last two given by the United States government. Um, he has, I think, something like 60 honorary doctorates from around the world. Uh, no yeah. pressure as his daughter, really. <laughs> no pressure. Is, well, you really are standing up for your father. So, Monica Yunus, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you for having me. appreciate it. And again, Mohammed Yunus is out on bail while he appeals all the charges against him.
Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Agnello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. Democracy is also on the mind of our next guest. Michael Kirk is the filmmaker behind a new frontline documentary called Democracy on Trial. That premieres tomorrow on PBS, and it charts special counsel Jack Smith's indictment against the former President Donald Trump, which alleges federal election interference in 2020. And Kirk tells Hari Srinivasan why he chose to release the film now. Christian, thanks. Michael Kirk, thanks so much for joining us. Your film, Democracy on Trial, lays out the investigation into President Donald Trump's attempts to overturn uh, the results of the election. Why this film? Why now? As we approach uh, uh, what a lot of people are telling us is the most important election, presidential election, and in the face of that, uh, it seems like resolving January 6th and what happened and whether Trump has responsibility and what impact that all has on the democracy and how the election is going to go felt like the very first piece of business uh, we should do on frontline uh, ask us to to really take a long hard look at the trial uh, that is uh, that is uh, Jack Smith's uh, special counsel trial uh, that may happen in Washington on March 4th. Uh, take a look there first uh, at, at what a lot of people think of as the central moment uh, at the end of the Trump presidency, the beginning of the Biden pres- presidency, and the beginning of this particular year. Let's resolve that, people kept saying to us. So uh, we went out and tried to tell the story in its simplest but most thorough form, and we ended up with two and a half hours of uh, of what I hope is informative television. You know, having it had, had a chance to see it, it is truly amazing how you've kind of truncated what took weeks and months for the uh, investigative committee to compile and what went into Jack Smith's prosecution case and how you've laid that out in two and a half hours. But, uh, you know, going to that kind of House Select Committee after Republicans in the Senate chose to block anything like that from happening. Uh, Like we've had a 9-11 commission before, it was bipartisan, that's not the case here. And you kind of had an interesting element in here, uh, Representative Benny Thompson from Mississippi. Why was this personal for him? I I think, uh, you know, there there are many things that Congressman Thompson is in Washington to achieve, been there a long time, a long political career, coming from a small town in uh, Mississippi, 500 people, I think, in, in the town. And it, 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 at, at the heart of what Congressman Thompson tells us his life's work has been is protection of voter rights uh, for lots of obvious reasons. He's a black. Uh, he's been in Congress when all, all of the efforts to, uh, to abrogate, to lessen, to make it harder to vote uh, have been happening. He thinks of this a particular moment, uh, uh, that particular set of events around the January 6th attacks as an example of 
uh, as the greatest manifestation uh, of uh, an effort to limit the votes of the American people. And he thinks of it as his uh, as his job to to point that out. Uh, the second and most important thing to him was the use of uh, the Confederate battle flags at, uh, at at the attack on Congress and how that resonated with him in a lifetime of growing up around the Klan and other whites in the in his part of Mississippi and what was happening in the South to uh, limit voting rights. Uh, the battle flag became the Confederate battle flag became a a symbol uh, of those times that resonates even uh, on the steps of the Capitol on January 6th. So, so Chairman uh, Thompson you know, was determined to draw a bright red line around that, a circle around that and say, this is something we need to talk about because voting rights are at stake here, not just Donald Trump's uh, presidency or potential presidency. The layers of showing intent and how your film breaks that down is also very interesting. And that the president, he's warned and told by people that are close to him uh, that he otherwise trusted, yet he goes out and repeatedly, knowingly, goes out and spreads the big lie. We were careful to try to include um, uh, comments from the people who told him these things three days before, two days before. We have as much evidence as we can find. Bill Barr, the former attorney general, telling him it was BS that everything he was asserting, that he had examined it, used the resources of the Justice Department to examine it, and that it was uh, uh, BS. Uh, the same is true with Secretary uh, Raffensperger from Raffensperger from uh, from Georgia and others. Uh, finding uh, 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 the acting attorney general, uh, uh, others uh, who told him, warned him, said it's not true. Don't go forward and say it. We, we wanted to make really sure that those were Republicans who were making those assertions. Those were people who had been supporters of his, who had worked with him on re-election, who desperately hoped he would win re-election. Uh, it is those people who are saying those things uh, in, in the film. And, and that felt to me like uh, the next step to take. It's not pointy-headed liberals. It's not academics. It's not even uh, uh, mostly journalists. It is people who were close to him, who worked for him, who trusted him, who he trusted, who were telling him uh, what he was asserting were not was not true. And he, days later, would, of course, go forward and, and, and re-say the lies as we lay them out now. One of the Republicans that you speak with who was a supporter of President Trump was uh, Rusty Bowers out of Arizona, a representative. And he recalls how he was pressured by Rudy Giuliani, and he kind of lays out the tension, his sort of moral and internal struggle. What you have to understand here is that Rusty Bowers, this guy who, who worked for Trump, wanted Trump to be reelected in Arizona, worked for Trump's reelection, is given a choice. He can choose between his oath to the Constitution or President Trump, and he stays loyal to the Constitution. That is, in effect, what he, the choice that he's given. Even in the past when there have been serious Rusty Bowers speaks with a moral and legal clarity choose, that's very necessary to understand. We choose to follow the outcome of the will of the people. It's, it's my oath. And, and I hope that I'll never break that. I know I'm not, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm certainly not a perfect witness, but I am a witness. And uh, 
I had my say. And I wasn't trying to flower it up, wasn't trying to be anything other than just rusty. What was that emblematic of? Because there's so many Republicans that you talk to in the film that echo that same struggle. What gives me hope brings an optimism to an otherwise very negative last few months making this film and, 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 and sensing how just viral the argument, toxic the arguments have become in the country and around this particular issue is this idea that, that Rusty Bowers, Gabriel Sterling, uh, Secretary Raffsenberger, um, a, a, a lot of people in this, for Cassidy Hutchinson, these are Americans, conservative Americans, pro-Trump, worked for Trump, wanted to vote, when they voted for Trump, wanted everybody to vote for Trump, were heartbroken when he lost. These are people who, in their official capacities, uh, had also taken an oath to the Constitution. And they found themselves, they tell us, they say they said it to the committee and they said it to us. They find themselves in a moment, a critical moment in their lives, where Rudy Giuliani, Jenna Ellis, or one of Trump's attorneys, or Trump himself on the telephone, uh, ask them to do something that they felt uncomfortable doing, that they thought uh, uh, he was asking them to lie. And in every case, these Americans, these right-wing, conservative, Trump-supporting Americans chose the Constitution. You kind of retell pretty important scenes in the Oval Office, certain meetings that happened with his advisors. I mean, everything from, you know, uh, what Rudy Giuliani suggested to the president and how to deal with, uh, you know, the results going forward to how the president talked to Mike Pence days before January 6th, and even on the morning of. No. It's an amazing thing, Harry. Uh, because of what the committee had, which was the subpoena power, uh, you could hear what his daughter thinks you can, when he's fighting with Pence. You can hear what his own attorneys uh, thought in many critical moments. Uh, uh, there, it was a supercharged environment around the White House. And uh, the great good news for those of us who practice long-form journalism is a lot of it exists, exists on the record, exists by people who are willing to talk to us, exists by uh, audio recordings and video recordings. It's pretty hard to make the argument, for example, in a very simple way, that the crowd was just really slightly unruly. They got a little bit out of hand, but they didn't really commit criminal behavior. When you look at the video, uh, of the criminal behavior being committed. One of the interesting insights that the film uh, recounts is the testimony of Cassidy Hutchinson. And she was kind of the insider that, that made the testimony that day in front of the committee. But one of the things that she talks about is the president's displeasure with the crowd size at the ellipse. It was in the tent backstage that Hutchinson heard crucial evidence of what Trump knew about the potential for violence that day. When we were in the offstage announced area tent behind the stage, he was very concerned about the shot, meaning the photograph that we would get because the rally space wasn't full. The former president was unhappy with the crowd size. 
we learned that some of the crowd size inside the barricade was due to the fact that people were unwilling to pass through the magnetometers. Presumably because they had, they were carrying contraband weapons. Several thousand members of the crowd who refused to go through the mags watched from the lawn near the Washington Monument. I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. And none of us who covered uh, Trump from the very first hours of his presidency should be surprised that he's interested in crowd size. We all remember the arguments about his inaugural, uh, uh, the inaugural events out on the steps of the Capitol and his American carnage speech and his disappointment that the crowds weren't bigger and his, frankly, lies that it was bigger than it turned out actually to be there. So he was especially, I think, attuned, having invited his his supporters to Washington on this particular day to disrupt Congress, uh, and as his speech was about to take place, to want them all to be on camera, to be a, a, a visual manifestation of his power and heft and how and 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 the threat that they presented. I'm leaving aside the question of whether he caused them to go up to the Capitol building and commit unlawful acts, but just for the the visual alone, the optics of it alone. He wanted them to be in there closer. And as he says, according to Cassidy Hutchison, um, they're not here with their weapons for me. I don't have to worry about them. You don't have to protect me. They're not here for me. Uh, uh, and I think he believed the implications of what he was saying was they were body armored up. Not all of them by any stretch of the imagination, but enough of them were body armored up and perhaps carrying uh, weapons, as we know, remember people with weapons in the Capitol building, and uh, standing up on that hill. That when when we found the shot of the small crowd around, smaller crowd around him, and then you cut to the wide shot up at the picture of the memorial the was behind them, and you see the, the tens of thousands of people who would not go through the magnetometers. That, if I was a Secret Service agent, I would be very anxious about uh, whether I would whether uh, I would take the president of the United States up to the Capitol building once those people who had not been through the magnetometers were on their way up the street. A line of defense that President Trump's lawyers have used in different court filings as well as in the court of public opinion is that the sentiments expressed by the president, all these social platforms on campaign stumps is protected by free speech. And you talked to different legal scholars about this, and I'm sure this is gonna come up in the trial as well. What did they tell you about that? He has the right, as he asserts and his defense team asserts, he has the right to say things that might not be true. He has the right to say things like that. He has a First Amendment right, just like I do and just like uh, uh, you do. Uh, it's, it's the, what I wanted to know from the experts was when does it become a crime? Uh, we know he's a big believer in conspiracy theories. When when is talking about a conspiracy a crime? When is it, as they say, uh, uh, cry, uh, yelling fire in a crowded theater when there isn't a fire? Uh, what is the is that a First Amendment right? Do you have the right that freedom of speech? You do not. Uh, and and the limits on what the president of the United States uh, can say. Uh, uh, with uh, impunity 
is uh, is is it limited? His defense team is arguing, no, he can say anything he wants. He's the president of the United States. Uh, and if presidents can't say anything they want, and if they are not free to speak, uh, be careful of any rules that come along that limit that. Because someday your president, the one you like, the other side may be trying to get him or her for their speech, for things they say in office. So that fine line, that argument over that fine line, Trump's lies, are they illegal? And when and where would they be illegal in a case like January 6th? That's what we set out to explain with uh, with the experts, the constitutional law experts. And I, and I hope I hope we did a pretty good job of making that straight and clear uh, for viewers. You know, with the 30,000 foot view, when you look at this film, who's the intended audience here? Because it doesn't seem that it would do anything but harden the views of his existing supporters. Every time the president faces another indictment, it seems like his support increases and he's able to parlay that into a campaign donation and say that he is the victim. There are people out to get me. This is a witch hunt. I know many, many MAGA supporters who say it's public broadcasting. How can I ever trust it? I'm never going to trust that. And I know what you guys are going to do. So what can I do about that? There's almost nothing I could say or do in a film that would make all of those two sides in a very divided country uh, embrace and change any of their behaviors. But I don't know what changes people's behaviors. So my job is to lay it out there as straightforwardly and honestly and in a way that's coherent as a narrative as I possibly can and uh, and hope that if there are, and I suspect there are, between 7 and 11% of Americans who are over the next few months going to make up their minds about Donald Trump returning or or uh, Joe Biden continuing uh, to be president. And maybe this information will help uh, people make up their minds. And I uh, I think that's something we uh, we aspire to do. Uh, and, and in some ways, it's why it's so imperative to us as we're making it to try to take into account the fact that we're not convicting him with what the January 6th committee did. We're laying out the blueprint for what the federal prosecutors have uh, contended. The Frontline film is called Democracy on Trial. Filmmaker Michael Kirk, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me here. And finally tonight, a grand slam for a new champion. 22-year-old Italian tennis star Yannick Sinner poses with his gigantic trophy this morning in Australia. After a stupendous comeback to beat Russia's Daniil Medvedev in yesterday's men's open final making him the youngest to win the tournament since Novak Djokovic in 2008. Meantime, India's Rohan Bopana became the oldest player at 43 to ever win a Grand Slam title at the Australian Open. He did this alongside his men's doubles partner, Matthew Ebden, proving once again that age is just a number. And that's it for now. Thanks for watching. Goodbye from London. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.